Welcome to Circuit Break from Macrofab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and static hazard components. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 407. Circuit Break from Macrofab. So yeah, this week we are going to talk about this interesting Hackaday article. About static hazards in your circuits. Yeah. So what is a static hazard, Parker? So this is not static electricity, where most of us are thinking of static coming from. But this is a static hazard. It's kind of interesting because we, as engineers, electrical engineers nowadays, don't really deal with individual logic elements anymore like you just kind of slap a microcontroller on there and call it a day or yeah all the all the individual gates are inside your fpga or whatever i mean they're still logic gates are still useful for a handful of things but we're not building massively complex circuits using discrete gates yeah yeah i think the last time i used a discrete gate i was an inverter i think to invert a latch line so I could share the clock and latch lines for a 74HC595 and 165. For some reason, the designers of those chips made it so that the latches were like not compatible, which kind of sucks. So you use an inverter and then latches will work. Like one latch is like active high and the other one's active low or something like that. I think that's why I used it for. That was on the pinball controller. But that way we saved, you know, we saved one whole I.O. line <laughs> to use for something <laughs> else. But we really pushed those. Uh, we were using a SAMD 21 microcontroller and uh, we were using every single I.O. pin for that thing. Nice. Actually, no. And uh, funny enough, we used the same trick on <laughs> the previous version of that pinball controller, which was running a PIC32. Because PIC32 was running, had a lot more uh, like direct I.O. controlling stuff. We didn't have shift registers. But that microcontroller is really, really expensive. So SAMD21 for like $2.50 plus a handful of shift registers versus $11 PIC32. You know, it's always fun to get to look under the hood of a professional product that's out there and see... How did they go about doing it? Because in so many ways, I, I think, oh, their engineers are way smarter than me. So they have some really fancy ways of doing things. And I remember getting to see the schematic for a, a product once that had a lot of controls and a lot of LEDs and a lot of stuff going on. And uh, the way they controlled all of their LEDs was like 14 595 shift registers all in line. Just... Yeah. Oh, so you you did it the way that like as I would. Okay, cool. Like that and, and in some ways that's validating and in other ways it's like, oh, is there a better way of doing that? But no, I mean it, it worked. <laughs> it's it's been out there for a, a long time, so you know, sometimes sometimes that is like the easiest way of doing it. Yeah, and we even used uh the on the the original pinball controller, we used AND gates to drive the MOSFETs and not for drive strength or anything like that. We used one input of the AND from the microcontroller. So that'll be like the active, right? Mm -hmm. Active high, active low, um, or yeah, active high, 
or disabled quail low. And then the other input to that AND gate came from a, a watchdog timer on the board. And so if that watchdog didn't get a you know heartbeat pulse from the pick 32, it would basically pull all the AND gates on that one gate low and then shut down all the MOSFETs automatically. It was kind of like a way to prevent like if the code locked up or something bad happened on the you know processor side. At least the watchdog could shut everything down within a second or whatever it was set to. Mm-hmm. And we did the same kind of thing with the new one, the, the Pinotaur, but we used the shift registers because shift registers, they had a output enabled. They have an output enable pin, mm-hmm. and we tied that to the watchdog this time. And so it was able to basically when the watchdog trip, it would clear all those shift registers and not allow any uh, state changes. Well, new state changes, I should say. In one of the last products I worked on at um, WMD, I used a handful of edge detect circuits. Those are really useful for rejecting crap or, or, or finding like a, a, a bit more of a fundamental frequency of a, a complex waveform of just snagging one edge. And that's just a, a logic gate and an RC filter. And uh, it makes it nice for picking up one, a rising, a falling or either edge. So I don't know. I've, I've used a handful of discrete circuits, but I'm, tr- I'm struggling to think of a time that I've used more than two yeah and like in a row <laughs> in a circuit because you're right like you could just you it's just it, it becomes cumbersome to buy the part and spend all that real estate on your uh, your board just to put down some simple logic stuff yeah 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 so yeah back to the static part though um so this is yeah so so what what is this in reference to so the static part is in reference to there's a video on the hackaday article what they're talking about on it is when let's say you have some logic inputs into your let's say you built some logic with some gates and you change the inputs but the output should stay the same so like let's say it's a logic one you change the inputs but the output is supposed to stay a one mm-hmm. what happens is because of propagation delays or stuff like that you can get a hazard where the output fluctuates during the reconfiguring or recombobulating of of <laughs> the glue logic that's in there to spit out the one. And it's kind of interesting that this was, used to be a huge problem back when circuit design was mostly done in gates. And then we realized having clocks is a really nice thing because then you can have circuits that just do this like weird garbly goop stuff. But it, as long as it settles out by the next clock cycle, you don't care which is the span of the digital realm, basically, at that point. <laughs> yeah, actually, I've, I was well aware of this issue because I've certainly run into it myself. And uh, it's it's it kind of almost, in a way, looks like bounce and debounce, but the output just modifies when you think it shouldn't. And yeah, it, it's totally due to propagation delay. Now, I found some articles about it because I was curious. I, I'd never heard this be called static hazard and apparently there's multiple different hazards in digital logic circuitry static dynamic and functional hazards before but but yeah static is a modification in an output when not expecting that 
The question, though, is what, what do we do to mitigate static hazards? Well, use a microcontroller. Um, <laughs> uh, use a clock, like you said. I'm trying to remember, actually, because it's been a while since I remember static hazard and dynamic hazard. I, I remember these are slowly coming back. I think we touched on these for like two or three days in like my intro to digital logic mm-hmm. um, classes. And then the professor's like, oh, yeah. And then we just use clocks to get rid of this problem. <laughs> oh, actually, I think it was more of a introducing why in digital logic we use clocks is because of this problem. It simplifies the problem. In a way, it negates the no man's land between edges. Yes. It allows things to happen there. The YouTube channel for Shane, he wrote this uh, or produced this video called The Lesser Known Static Hazard. I think the last name is Oberlawyer, Shane Oberlawyer. I'm probably butchering that. Yeah, I wasn't going to try to pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the uh, so he has like an example his logic gate and then when he he shows his his uh, boolean logic and then his carno map and uh i remember steven always saying he hated doing those and that was like my favorite part of digital logic class oh you liked carno maps yeah i was i was really good at them oh okay i was like the one time i got like a hundred <laughs> in electronic <laughs> it's just k map lit <laughs> i actually i it, Jump on our discourse. I'm curious who liked Carnot Maps and who hates them. I would love to have people comment on there and just because it would be really fun to get a cross section of our listeners to see is it like 50 50, like hate them, love them, or is it like 98% of people were like these were terrible, and then Parker's the one guy who's like, I love these. <laughs> well, then it would be the same thing with the uh, with Bodie Plots and you. Mm. Body plots are everything, dude. Though we, we did figure out why I hate it so much, though. You didn't. I don't know if we ever discussed on the podcast, but. <sighs> yeah, it was something. Uh, you, you hated them because you, I don't want to, you didn't get the. The reasoning. Or didn't understand the, the reasoning or, or like what yeah. the purpose was. Yeah, I'm, it, it, it's basically it was the professor or the class. Yeah. Or I somehow like forgot the entire explanation of why we were doing them. <laughs> <laughs> Or some combination. Yeah. I just knew to draw them a certain way, and it got me grades. Hmm, yeah. Which is kind of a weird way to treat a class, but that's just how it was. Well, th- there was a bit of that. Did you ever have to do Smith charts in uh, in college? I don't recall. Smith chart. we did them as part of our electromagnetics class. Oh, no. I, I, no, I remember looking at one of these, because I did take an electromagnetic class. Yeah. That class sucked. And I remember being absolutely awful at it. <laughs> Everyone is awful at electromagnetics. That class was terrible. But I but I do remember I remember doing Smith charts and learning about them and and having to perform them on an exam. I couldn't tell you how to do them nowadays, but but that was sort of the same thing for me, where it was like I need to learn how to draw circles or curves or lines on this to get a grade. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it didn't feel good taking that. The uh, it was a it was a filters class, mm. and it was like, man, it was just terrible. That's all I remember from that class is it was just terrible. Yeah, yeah, okay, so one thing that that really annoyed me in filters ish class that whole 
do the Laplace and find the the transfer function for this analog circuit. I really enjoyed that. I, I like doing the math behind it, but, but something that really annoyed me was you would set up the entire equations, you would set up everything such that you could begin analyzing the circuit, and you would get to a certain point, and then you had to just know to get your equation into a certain form, because there was a certain form for a single-order transfer function. This is coming back to me now. Yeah, this is coming back. <laughs> and so you already knew the answer before you walked in. You just had to do the algebra tricks to get it into that form, and then you could manipulate it into the Bode. And I like that in the sense that it's like, okay, it it gives you the path, but it also doesn't feel like I understood it. I just did the math trick to get it to the place and then executed on that. Yeah, that I 100%. Because that that was, it was like, I'm learning these math tricks to do this graph thing. Why? Right. Why does this all work? Well, and a little bit further, like, why is a first order transfer function this equation? We were failed to be taught that. Why is it that equation? We were taught it is this equation, so just do it. And I, I never really liked that. And and there's equations for second order filters and things like that. But, you know, it, you can easily gum up the mix by slapping an extra resistor or an extra capacitor in parallel with something. And then the math isn't so pretty. There's not this like default function that you can just plug everything in and get it. And so I, I feel like there's a little bit of a analysis failure in that. But it is nice, though, because if you're just trying to answer the question, you, you just have to wiggle the algebra enough until you get to the thing that looks like what you've been taught and then you can execute from there. It's like taking a taking a can of alphabet soup and then shaking it up a couple times and dumping it out in the bowl, see if you get the right answer, not pour it back in, <laughs> shake it back up, pour it back out. You know, a real quick funny tangent. You remember the the way old Adam uh, Adam West Batman? Some days you can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> exactly. I remember one episode. It, I think it might have been the Riddler. He was delivered a bowl of alphabet soup. And he had an alphabet soup decoding machine in, yes. in the Batcave. Yeah. Where he put that in. And <laughs> in the Batcave. <laughs> oh, so good. Oh, classic. That is, I think that is still my favorite Batman because of how ridiculous it is. Oh, it's insane. Yeah. It definitely does suffer from the people... It, it, to save budget, it definitely has a lot of like, we're going to stick four people in one room and not change the set for a whole episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Robin, pass me the shark repellent. <laughs> <laughs> As he's like punching the shark. That's like latching up on it. And they're in the Batcopter. Doesn't the shark explode when it hits the water? The shark? I don't know if the shark explodes or not. I thought it did. Like he sprays the shark with shark repellent. Yeah. But like the that's shark. From, that's from the movie, I think. Yeah, that's from the movie. Batman 64. Batman 1964. It was called just the Batman. The Batman. Yeah, okay. Or Batman 66. God, that movie's great. <laughs> movie's terrible. What are you talking I love, about? I love this movie. <laughs> 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 that's the one where um all of the villains get together right and they're in like the little like penguin boat that flaps its feet i i want to say yes i just love this plot so the four criminals are the joker the penguin the riddler and the Catwoman. because those are like the ones from the sh tv show mm -hmm. that are recurring 
And they equipped themselves with a dehydrator that could turn humans into dust. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because it's like a, a, a submarine resembling a penguin. Right, right. For some reason, because it has to. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Man, we are going off the rails on this one. Oh, yeah. I'd love this movie. It's so it's so of the time of what Batman was. And this is why, like, I don't really like the new Batmans, because he's just like... <laughs> Adam West's Batman has so much charm to it, to that character. Uh, it's classic. The movie does drag a lot, though. It's really slow. Oh, yeah. It's so slow. I mean, it's it's definitely the old school style of 1977 Star Wars was really the first what I call like maybe a modern movie. What how as we think of a movie. I mean it doesn't have these long shots of or not cutting shots of like three people in frame and they just talk to each other. Right. Which is that happens like the middle like hour of this movie is that. <laughs> yeah. For audiences nowadays, that's super boring. Because usually when they do conversations nowadays, they like cut to different frames, right? Mm-hmm. And 77 Star Wars kind of did that. Now, the thing is, it's funny thing about that is if you watch some of the original, like, stuff that got cut out of that movie, it's like that. And they changed it in editing. Because hmm. there's another another movie that came out in 77 was uh, by Fox as well, was Damnation Alley. And that movie, when you watch it, is very like the older style action movies where they have a lot of like random dialogue where they're just like people talking to each other. And then there's of course action and stuff, but Fox thought that was going to be the big hit of the summer and put all their marketing behind it. And then ended up being star Wars being this huge, crazy hit. So I'd reckon if you haven't watched damnation alley, you should watch it. Cause actually it's a really good movie. It's just that that's the one with the crazy van that they made, right? Yeah. Like accordion off-roading bus. And they actually built the damn thing. It's like, it's crazy they actually built that thing. <laughs> it's got like tri wheels. So, like, if it hits something, the wheels like rotate and clock. Oh, it's so cool. <laughs> seems like it seems like a car you would drive around, Parker. Oh, yeah. I, I would totally commute that if I, if I, uh, if it still exists. I think it still exists, except it's like owned by, it's like in some museum. I think someone restored it recently. Could have been you. All right, so let's get back to static hazards here. Yes. Uh, <laughs> man, we went all over the place. Steven, pass me the topic <laughs> yeah. back. <laughs> Do you have anything more to say about static hazards? Yeah, nowadays we use clock gating, that kind of stuff. I, th I think this is just worth being aware of. Yes, yeah. Especially where if you're using multiple gates to implement some kind of functionality in your circuit, you kind of have to do time analysis. Ooh, time analysis. I wonder if, I wonder if, if Batman has a time analysis machine in his Batcave. Well, probably. Where you have to basically step through. I mean, I actually remember doing this by hand. Is step through like changing in logic by hand. I guess you could do this in simulation nowadays. Super easy. Actually, you can pop back. Actually, probably when we were in college, you could do this in simulation pretty easily. <laughs> but um, for simple circuits, you can do it by hand. Basically, like propagate stuff out and see where states change. And if you have a problem with this kind of stuff. And I think what 
the big solution is like if you have like in this case Shane's circuit, he like added another gate that allows it like the propagation to happen kind of like in a pseudo gate. So it didn't have a clock, but it's like a pseudo clock kind of setup, if I recall. Yeah, it, it basically canceled and tried to make everything appear at the same time. You know, uh, you can also have it such that uh, it, I mean this cost more in bomb cost and everything else, but you can try to put enough gates such that your propagation delay is equivalent across all your inputs. Yeah. So yeah. you can avoid that. Yeah. Like you can use inverters, if I recall, were very popular ways to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, another another really simple solution that, that probably defeats it, but if you just need a brute force solution, a lot of times you can just put an RC filter across the output it slows things down but as but if you can set that to negate any kind of really rapid changes it'll just filter it out and you can still maintain your full state changes as long as you can deal with the slowdown of that yeah 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 that works too or like we keep saying just switch to a microcontroller <laughs> i mean microcontrollers are just getting to the point where like, I remember the, there was that article, I can't remember, this is how long, I think it was like around the time the podcast started, where it was like the dollar microcontroller. Yeah. It was like an article about the dollar, $1 microcontrollers, and there was like, there was like 15 at the time, and I think now we're at like 15, 10 cent microcontrollers. Oh, yeah. That are very basic. Didn't Dave Jones do a video on that uh, with like the cheapest microcontroller on LSCS or whatever, or whatever that one thing was. And it was, it was like 10 cents and he actually got it up and running. And uh, yeah, they're ridiculous now. Yeah. So like 10 cents is what your quad and pack is going to cost anyways. Oh yeah. More than that. Yeah. Well, in the smaller packages, they actually get pretty cheap. I mean, if you're talking in like the big, you know, dip 16s, they're still like 50 cents, but when you start shrinking the die size, uh, not uh, not die, but the package size down, they they get really cheap. But yeah, when you have a microcontroller that in inexpensive nowadays, it's like well now you can technically just write your own custom logic and code and has a clock. You know why wouldn't you? And doing you know quad discrete AND gates in dip packages is just going to eat up so much room on your board. It doesn't really seem terribly suitable for new designs, but, you know, maybe there's someone yelling at me right now being like, I'm designing with it. <laughs> well, go yell at Steven in our discourse. Yeah. Come say hi. Circuit hyphen break dot macrofab.com. And, and while you're there, let us know if you like or dislike Carno maps. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next topic is IPC applauds new U.S. government strategy for advanced packaging. This comes off the CHIPS Act. This is actually a problem that Stephen and I were talking about, I think, a couple of months ago. Yeah. I can't recall, actually. At this point, yeah. Where the big problem with the CHIPS Act is, this is when the CHIPS Act first got passed, which was like over a year ago at this point. The problem with the CHIPS Act is it was just like, we're going to spend this much more money. And then how we will make it up as we go. That's the big problem with it. <laughs> now, since then, it's taken a year or so, so far, they've been carving out that CHIPS Act pie. So $3 billion of that dollars of that CHIPS Act is going to go to increasing 
our ability to do advanced packaging of integrated circuits here in America. So Stephen, you've got some interesting stats here. Yeah, so 3 billion used to drive the advanced packaging. So as of right now, the US only accounts for 3% of all global semiconductor packaging, and it lacks even some of the state-of-the-art capabilities. So so this was something we we talked about a while ago where the CHIPS Act was going to fuel chip manufacturing in the United States, but that didn't actually include packaging. So dyes and semiconductors were being manufactured here, but they'd still have to be shipped overseas, packaged, and then shipped back here. So a sizable chunk of this, because, I mean, the whole CHIPS Act is, what, $50 billion was the number? Yeah, $50 billion. Uh, was dedicated. So so three out of that $50 billion is going for packaging. Now, of that 50 there's... $39 billion going to a manufacturing incentives and $11 billion for research and development. So what is the, the question is, what is the advanced packaging? I think you had some information on this, right, Parker? Yeah, so it's basically anything beyond standard packaging for basically putting an IC into, onto its substrate and then gold bonding wires to leads. Anything beyond that is called advanced so if you want like MEM circuitry, like sensors, if you want to stack multiple dies in there, if you want to do like the new stuff is the 3D stuff, 3D packaging. Mm-hmm. That's totally, that's probably like hyper advanced or hyper packaging. <laughs> Turbo packaging. Turbo packaging. <laughs> um, I, I think they also say there's power delivery and thermal management in that is unique to the package that also fits in the advanced category. Yeah, yeah. So whenever you see packages with strange thermal pads, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Or anything that has like multiple kinds of devices inside, like electrical, mechanical. That's why I brought up MEMS. MEMS is a advanced packaging technique. So yeah, it's probably like 90% of like all your packaging. (laughs) It It doesn't include like transistors or like, Yeah, it's not going to be your jelly bean little bars. The AND gates we were just talking about. Right. Which, in terms of the CHIPS Act, makes sense because those, the CHIPS Act is not going to fuel manufacturing facilities for popcorn parts, you know, jelly bean transistors and things like that here in the States. There's, it's more advanced semiconductors, which makes sense that it would also be the more advanced packaging. If we can get like a two to three dollar microcontroller, that was like stateside built, I'd be all over that. Oh, yeah. You'd be designing like five new products just to use it. Just use that one. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> oh, uh, speak. it's not in our notes. But let's jump to it since we're talking about chips right now. Let's do it. Is There is a rumor to be a new Pi Pico. Ooh. The RP2040 is going to get an update. And then there was also a rumored new compute module by Raspberry Pi. Yeah, because with the... Let's see if I can find that. How long ago was the Pi 5 release now? It's, it's only been a month or two, right? That sounds correct. Now, I'm, I'm trying to find... I think one of my friends sent me a message about this uh, new microcontroller. I'm reading some people talk about the compute module being on a different release schedule than the Raspberry Pi 5. I mean, that makes sense, right? They usually come after the, the actual main module, but they release on a on a different um, cadence yeah. than the Pi module. So people are saying if there is to be a five, 
compute module, they would expect it in 24 or 25. A Raspberry, oh, the Raspberry Pi moderator saying, we hope to release some news on the compute module 5 sometime in H1 next year. All right, so there's that. That's part of the news. What, uh, was it just supposed to be a, like an updated version of it? or well, so I, I don't know <laughs> because I didn't read it. Well, I think at this point I can say I just made it up because I cannot find anything in the person that... Yeah, I'm not finding anything either. Yeah. What is the difference between a Pico H and a Pico W? Is it wireless or not? Yes. That's what I thought. But I did find something else interesting to talk about. What's that? Tesla released all the service and uh, service documentation for their original Roadster. Oh, I thought you were going to say for one of their rockets. Oh, that'd be cool. Well, that's SpaceX. <laughs> the, the, the sir, yeah, the, you're right. You're right. The, uh, the service manual for a rocket. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it doesn't go into crazy detail, about the electronics, like the actual, like, Gerbers or anything, but it has like the functional diagrams of like how the circuits work and mm. and all that stuff, like the high level functionalities of them, which is it doesn't have schematic diagrams. No, it has block diagrams. Okay. So it's like an appliance. Right, right. But it, the cool thing is it's got like it has like theory of operation, parts manual, the connectors, all stuff that's like actually like really hard to find about cars. Mm-hmm. They just have it. That's really cool. They well, they just recently released it. What's the impetus for them releasing it? I have no idea. Huh. I'm wondering if it's a right to repair your Tesla g- given Well, it's from 2008. Oh, <laughs> when they made this car. So. Okay, <laughs> got it. Yeah, that's true. I think it was they probably don't have a lot of IP tied up in this stuff in particular right now. Oh, right, anymore. Yeah, they they're they're many revisions past that. Yeah. But the cool thing is, is like the theory of operation manual, which is kind of like the first section is the electrical system. And here's like a component layout and like how everything talks to each other, which is actually like stuff that you need to actually repair this stuff down the road. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was about repair. It's if you wanted to take one of these and like use it for something else, like the parts. Now you have a way to know how to figure out how to make them work. Mm hmm. It's really cool. I, I'm looking, I'm planning on digging into this because Tesla has pushed a lot of the adoption of electrical components in cars. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is like electric power steering, electric brakes, uh, electric everything because, you know, they had to. It's like the first like Tesla's had like a vacuum brake booster and then a vacuum pump because it doesn't have an engine to make a vacuum. So they had they did it that way, which is really weird looking back that way, but that's the only way they had to do it because back then an electric brake booster was still kind of like, what's a good way to put it? Uh, it was still in like the prototyping phase or in really early. They couldn't go to Bosch and be like, hey, Bosch, we need you to develop an OEM electric brake booster. And Bosch would be like, well, how many are you going to buy? Like a million of them and... Tesla's probably going to be like, like a hundred. <laughs> so yeah, but now like most cars are at least electric power steering and you know, there's a growing number of electric brake boosters going out there now. So it's cool stuff for hot rodding. For, for the layman here, what, what is a brake booster? A brake booster is amplifies the force that you're applying to the pedal to the master cylinder. So it's like a, an assist. Okay. 
So like in a in the vacuum example, or like even the hydraulic example is, so if you applied a little bit of force to your pedal, it would open up a valve that would allow the hydraulic system to push harder on your brake system. As opposed to like a mechanical linkage where you're the one putting, applying the force. Pressure to the hydraulic system directly. Right, right. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, which would be called a manual system because I have a car that's like that. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, you still get, you still get due to mechanics, you get some kind of mechanical advantage. Yeah, yeah. You, usually you have a longer. But this is just boosting that. It's a, it's a preamp for your brakes. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And so there's a lot of different styles like um, vacuum boosters were the most popular forever because they were super simple and inexpensive to make. And then, um, yeah, we ran vacuum up until electric. And then there's some cases where you have hydraulic and then you have air brakes, which are its own thing as well. Wow, we're getting off crazy tangents. I wish I could find out where I came up with this idea that there's a new, possibly new Raspberry Pi microcontroller coming out. <laughs> we're going back to that already. <laughs> I mean, that's where we're at. So, so wait, sorry. Is a vacuum brake booster basically a diaphragm that gets pressed? Yeah, yeah. So, so one side of the diaphragm is exposed to the vacuum of your engine. Because if you're running a naturally aspirated engine, the, the act of sucking in air into the manifold creates a vacuum. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you're using that vacuum to... And so when you push on the pedal you basically open up a little tiny orifice inside that diaphragm that allows the vacuum to act on the diaphragm now. And then it basically sucks the, or helps you assist pushing the uh, master cylinder, which then applies the pressure to your brake pads. So you're not actually connected at all to the brakes. No, no. Well, in that kind of a system. No, no, you are. So there is like a rod that goes all the way through. That's why your brakes work. If your engine's turned off. Oh, good point. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's why it's harder to stop your car when your engine's turned off. Right, right, right. Yeah. And a, a hydraulic booster is the same way, except instead of an air diaphragm or vacuum diaphragm, it's hydraulic pressure, usually from a power steering pump. And it's the same way, though. It has a continuous rod all the way through so that if your engine dies and you don't have power steering pressure anymore, you can still apply your brakes. The electric ones, I think, also work the same way is... If you apply to the brake, it's pushing that rod, and then there's a big motor that's sensing you pressing the pedal, and it can assist you into pressing into the master cylinder. So the electric one still has a pump, though, right? No. No. Okay. Maybe I have it uh, backwards in my head. Think about like just a, a a motor. Yeah. That senses. So you. So let's say your pedal pushes a rod that pushes the brake piston, right? Right. Then say, okay, I'm going to put a sensor on that rod, and when I detect that rod moving, I'm going to engage a motor that will assist moving that rod Mm -hmm. and basically allow more force to be applied to that rod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I got you now. And then you can do stuff like, oh, if they only lightly tap it, maybe don't apply so much force, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of stuff you can do with electronics. It's kind of cool with how all this electric stuff for hot routing because it's starting to hit the hot routing scene as like ways to get around weird packaging problems of stuffing big motors and really tiny cars. Because a lot of times when you do that, you run into like, oh, I need to put like the master cylinder somewhere. 
and I need to put like the brake booster somewhere and because those don't fit. Mm-hmm. And it allows you to like move stuff around now or a lot more. It's kind of cool stuff. Hi, Pico. I can't find out this at all. <laughs> maybe, maybe you really did just dream it. Dude, I could have. Is that a weird dream to have? For you, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We've lost ourselves in that whole conversation. We're having fun here. I don't know how to go back. Nah. So we'll just go forward. <laughs> uh, so we have some community updates. So on episode 402 of the circuit break, uh, consciously collecting concepts, Todd Zebert has some questions about or in some comments about the box truck project that I've been working on. Todd had a Ram ProMaster Camper conversion DIY, and he lives in South California that and he's got salt solid panels all over the top of his van as well. And he found that uh, he had to clean them a lot because of dust. Mm. And it would really affect the efficiency, which I knew that's a problem. I didn't think you'd have to clean it as often as Todd had to. He said every few days. And then when it's tree pollen season in, in Houston, you'll have to clean them every few days. Maybe every couple hours. Yeah, just the nice, fine yellow dust everywhere. Yeah. Ugh. And Todd was talking about, I think I mentioned wind turbines as a, a future expansion. Mm-hmm. And Todd said that you need like a constant two to 25, a 20 to 25 mile an hour wind. And it needs to be 10 meters above the ground, which is kind of interesting. 10 meters is pretty high. Yeah, that's 30 feet up. I guess, yeah, because that's where a lot of the wind would be at. But the cool thing is I do have that whole roof rack. I could attach it to that, like the pole, and it could mm-hmm. hold the whole thing could just swing up and then telescope up. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, you know, if 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 you need 20 to 25 mile an hour winds and you're 30 meters up, you might need some guy wires also that you, you know, triangulate down. Oh, to keep the hold it. Yeah, to keep the rod from tipping over. From flexing and then breaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then also, uh, Todd mentions uh, a second alternator set up to charge the house batteries. That is an interesting topic, the second alternator. Because I tried, I wanted to go that route to put a second alternator on my engine that would just charge the, the batteries on the box truck. And I wanted to do like 48 volts. That way I didn't have to use a big DC to DC converter. And basically the problem I came up with is no one would sell me the parts at all. So you have you have some really weird issues with doing alternator stuff. So alternators aren't very happy when the load gets disconnected quickly because you have all that magnetic flux basically uh, mm-hmm. goes crazy inside of them. And you basically end up burning out the alternator if that happens. And so you have to use a really special controller for the alternator that tells like how much how much power the alternator should be outputting. And then in that controller also needs to talk to your batteries that they're charging so that when the batteries get really close to being fully charged, they can go, Hey, turn down the current. I'm about to shut off because I'm about to like hit my top level voltage for the, you know, lithium battery cutoffs. No one wants to sell that stuff to, um, at least in the 48 volt. Like, it seems that 12 volt people will sell that stuff. 
But the OEMs want you to like go to their facility to get that stuff installed. And I wasn't too interested in doing that. Hmm. So I think what I'm going to do instead, because I do want to charge off my alternator, is I'm just going to put a larger, uh, basically upgrade the alternator that's in the truck to like a larger amperage that charges my 12 volt system in the box truck. And then I'll just basically do a 12 volt to 48 volt step up to charge my house batteries. Because that I can just buy the parts for and no one no one cares. Right. There's so. nothing terribly special there. Yeah, yeah. It, it was really frustrating because I was like, yes, I know I need to make sure that the CAN bus talks to each other. Yes, I I know it. Yes. And it's like, okay. And and then like, oh, we can't sell to. It's like, wait, what? Why? And they're like, we, we are not going to sell to individuals. And I'm like, okay, fine. By the way, if you're out there and have been able to get a 48-volt alternator and charging circuit for lithium batteries, let me know because I'd love to know how you did it yourself, by the way. Right. That might be easier than doing this hopscotch thing that you're doing where you're just kind of building a little bit of inefficiencies. Or I shouldn't say building them in. You're just accepting them because that's the solution. Accepting the inefficiencies. Yeah. And it's not that big of a deal. It's like a it's like a fifteen percent loss between the twelve volt to forty eight volt system at that amperage. Because you're talking like, you know, putting one hundred fifty amps over the twelve volt side <laughs> into a into a box to put thirty amps into the uh, batteries. So yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of ways to do about it. It could also be like I could even do it. The this sounds even this is way worse, but it'd be even easier in terms of like the. Uh, how much how much wire the problem with doing the the 12 48 volt way is how thick of wires you have to run because mm. you can't put the the dc dc converter basically under the hood because they they don't like to heat that much you have to put them somewhere cool so that means you have to run really really big gauge wires from your battery down to wherever you put it so i've been thinking is what if i did an inverter so I went from 12 volt DC to 120 volt AC, and because the inverters you can get inverters that can live near like the engine area, and then then you're only running 120 volt AC, which is lots. You, it's like it would be only like 10 gauge wire at that point instead of like one odd, <laughs> right? And you could run that into your my inverter. I already have my own one inverter for solar as a generator input. So then you, you basically go 10% and then another 10%, 20% loss there. <laughs> this seems way overly complex for the end result. You, well, I'm hoping I just don't have to worry about having an alternator charging. I'm hoping that the solar panel just... The, the solar's enough, yeah. Solar just does enough I need and I don't have to worry about it. You know, the inverter is actually probably the cheapest way to do it. Ah, oh, but it seems so inefficient. Yeah, but you're already burning all that fuel. doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's like 60% of that in, uh, fuel anyways just goes to heat. So Well, now 70% will go to heat. <laughs> and it won't be too bad, actually. There's actually a cool um, video. I think we found this video was actually on our discourse as well, but in the chat part of it. And it was putting a wind turbine on the front of your car will reduce or it will increase your mileage. And that's with a caveat there. 
The caveat is if you need to generate electricity inside your vehicle, it is better to do it with a wind turbine in front of your car instead of off your alternator. Given the same so power, your car's just pushing through the the air, pushing this wind turbine. Yes, in order to generate. <laughs> yeah, because how it works is I don't know if you've seen the video, Stephen. But so how that works is the wind turbine actually because when you move a car is moving through the air, it's going fifty miles an hour, right? The wind turbine eats up some of that wind speed, and so you actually only have like twenty five mile an hour wind hitting your car. And so your effective drag goes up, but when you compare it to, let's say you're pulling a thousand watts off your wind turbine off the front of your, off your truck, right? You have this big fan in front and you're pulling a thousand watts off of it and putting them in your batteries. Well, basically it's, it's more efficient to do it that way than it is to pull a thousand watts off your belt system on your engine. Right. Right, yeah. right. That's where we're getting. Yeah, at. yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still a closed system. So it's a closed the, system. So you're not the, the fuel is it. still having to push that. It's just what you're paying in fuel cost for electricity. It you pay less to put the turbine in front than the alternator. That's what it is. Yes. Yeah. And you have to explain that because people are like, oh, that does. When you just say, hey, I'm getting better mileage with the turbine in front. It's like, oh, because you're pulling a thousand watts off your engine regardless. It's just how you're doing it. And being able to basically reduce the drag on your truck with the turbine makes up for some of the inefficiencies. It's a really cool video. It can't be one to one though, right? What do you mean? Because I mean, if you, what, it, what I mean by that is if you put the turbine out in front of your, your car, yes, the, the, the idea that the drag is now being I guess, eaten up by the turbine and now your car doesn't uh, ex experience the same drag force. Overall, the drag is still there. Yeah, it's still there. And it's still an engine having to push it into there and everything is a lossy yes. system. So by adding this extra thing there, it's you're adding more of a lossy thing to this whole system. So overall, it has to be slightly worse. But when just looking at the sub part of creating electricity, that one part gets better, but probably the whole system gets slightly worse. Well, the, the whole system is just pulling, a, let's say, a thousand watts for this example off the engine is not good. Like you, it takes a lot of fuel to do that. Because you're also having, you still have, you're pulling a thousand watts now off your engine and you still have the same drag that your your engine has to push your car through. Yeah. But so now you're going, hey, I'm going to put a turbine in front that's going to eat up some of that drag, right? Yeah. But you still have to push, a you still have to put a thousand watts more into the system, what the engine has to do. Right, right. But it's but it reduces the effective drag of your vehicle, which improves the mileage over just pulling off the engine, the thousand right. watts to an alternator. Right, right. Remember, it's a it's a it's a closed bubble. Yeah. So so if you want to get a thousand, the energy watts, has to come from somewhere. Energy has to come from somewhere, and it has to come from the the liquid dinosaur that you poured into it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. So the, yes, it's a closed system. So 
But you you'll say I think what they did is they the dude put had an oven in the back of his Bronco, and I don't remember <laughs> if he was cooking or anything or anything in it. But he just had an oven. But he was just using that as a load. As that was the load. Yeah, that's that's actually probably a really good load because ovens are just well the the heating element is just a gigantic resistor. Giant resistor. So it's a really nice pure load. And it's insulated at least too, so you're not like cooking alive. Yeah. Yet at least until. It heat soaks out, but yeah. <laughs> I, I I purchased a hot plate on um, I don't know where one time, but it was clearly made of chinesium, and uh, and I cracked it open once, and it was literally a, like a lamp cord with an inline fuse that just went straight to the hot the heating element, and so it was it was a fuse and a resistor. That's effectively the whole system for this thing and the way you turned it off is just unplug it from the wall you get one heat to setting and that was hot real hot at least it at least it had a fuse yeah exactly right 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 (laughs) (laughs) all right and then we have another comment and this is about the math cad that steven was talking about yeah, from that same episode. Uh, so PDP-1 from the uh, Discourse community uh, mentioned that I had been talking about MathCAD on um, on that episode, which MathCAD is really cool. However, it does have the, the downside of being fairly expensive. And so it's not really accessible to the hobbyist level. And 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 PDP gave a suggestion of for an alternate of Jupiter Lab, which is spelled J U P Y T E R L A B, all one word. And and it's it's funny. I've I've had some experience with Jupiter Lab because um, a handful of months ago I, I took a, a a Python class, a class on uh, learning Python, and the class, at least in the beginning, it was utilizing Jupiter Lab for most of the work because Jupiter Lab allows Python based calculations and some mixed code stuff. Uh, in in cell format, so it's basically think of like your TI eighty six, or or whatever back in the day, but just in your in a browser format that you can just execute single lines of code. And so if you need to write out an equation in a way that is Python friendly, Jupyter Lab allows you to do that. But you can execute effectively whole chunks of code in Jupyter Lab and uh, pull history and do actually revisions to previous code executions. So it's got some really, it's really, it's a really cool way to get your feet wet with figuring out how Python handles, well, everything really. But it also, if you're, if you're a whiz at Python, Jupyter Lab can be really helpful to use as just a calculator to the side over there. So yeah, as an alternate to MathCAD, the one thing I haven't really dug too deep in is with MathCAD's really easy to make things look nice. I think that's where you, a lot of the money comes in, uh, not necessarily just the calculations, but if, if you need to write out some equations or, or put some things in a format that you need to send to, I don't know, the sales team or something, and they need to be able to talk about it with the, with the customer or whatnot, you could just slap together something that looks really professional and nice very quickly. Jupiter lab probably has that capability. Well, I mean, it's it's effectively Python. So, yeah, it does have that capability, but probably not as fast. You probably have to turn a few more dials to get something to look nice on it. Regardless, it is a good alternative to MathCAD. So check that out. This is one more thing I want to talk about. Honda has a new Moto Compacto 
which is a kind of like a mini bike. So back in the 80s, I can't remember what car that was that Honda sold. Probably one, like probably like a Civic, but you could buy Honda that in the trunk came with a fold up like mini bike. There's a little gasoline powered mini bike that you could, you know, tool around on. Basically, you could park your car and then you can go. It's a pit, it's almost like out. a pit bike. It was a little, yeah, a little fold up pit bike. And then you could go drive down to wherever you needed to go. And it was, I think there were like 80 pounds, 60 to 80 pounds, um, if I recall. So they weren't light, but it was like, okay, that's like on the borderline of one person to be able to like carry. So you could park your car somewhere and then drive this little mini bike to your end location. That was the idea. But Honda has a new one that's come out that's all electric. And it's basically the size of a large briefcase. It's heavy. I think it was, you said it was like what? 40 pounds, 40, 41 pounds, I believe. Yeah, 41 pounds. So it's, it's a little bit bigger than a briefcase, but it folds down into a rectangle. It's got a really cool look to it. We'll post some links. Apparently, you can just order them from the Honda dealership. I really, really wish I would be irresponsible with my credit card right now, but <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> it is really cool. And when it's folded up, it it looks really neat. It, uh, in some ways, it kind Oh, totally. Yeah. Now, if it was Bond, though, it would actually look like a briefcase, though, like a leather briefcase. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It would be the size of a briefcase. Yeah. Yeah, that too. But yeah, it's really cool looking. And uh, and I have a really cool uh, on the website, a really good like like X-ray diagram of the bike. So you can kind of see the structure of it and how it folds up. It's also a really good like example of really good... uh, um, design engineering where like the whole system kind of works together. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, um, it's, it's not going to zip you around town really fast. It has a top speed of 15 miles an hour and it's acceleration from zero to 15 is seven seconds. Yeah. But that's I, not its purpose. Yeah. And, and if you were writing a briefcase, would you want to go faster than 15? I'm <laughs> writing a briefcase. <laughs> But like basically a pogo stick for a steering wheel between your legs. Yeah. It's just the whole package just looks great. They do say that they have them at dealers. I might just try to stop by a dealer and just take a look at it. You going to go try to test drive one of them? No. Because um, if I test drive <laughs> one, I probably have to buy it. <laughs> yeah. I just definitely just want to see it. Like, and I, I can't wait to see a, uh, a build like, breakdown like you know like fix it does like a video tear apart of stuff yeah i can't wait to see one of those like maybe like you know adam savage's uh his tested channel Uh uh-huh it would be really cool to uh see like this thing taken apart on that or something like that i could totally see him doing that yeah i can't wait to see this thing taken apart and seeing how how they got all the mechanisms to kind of fold up into this like rectangle of a e-bike it is 3.7 inches wide so it is very thin yeah that's the impressive thing is it is actually really thin it's like 24 inches wide and like 18 tall maybe 16 tall something like that Mm. but yeah so 
Thank you for listening to Circuit Break from Macrofab. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. So long for now. Later, everyone. You're not going to say take it easy? Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Come join us on our Circuit Break community Discord at circuit-break.macfab.com. Circuit Break.